Welcome to the Cybersecurity Defenders Podcast, episode number 56. My name is Christopher Luff. I'm one of the co-founders of Lima Charlie, and I will be your host. On today's episode, we're going to be examining some hacker history in the first of a two-part series outlining the cyber attacks conducted against Ukraine leading up to war. We were definitely worried, but couldn't have been sure, that Vladimir Putin was laying the groundwork for war. Beginning on January 13, 2022, a Russian APT installed wiper malware on the IT networks of government, NGO, and IT companies across Ukraine. The malicious program was designed to appear like ransomware, but contained no recovery feature. It simply destroyed any computer it wished. Just one day later, hackers from the intelligence service of Belarus, Russia's close ally, took down 70 websites belonging to the Ukrainian government. This was Tilling, laying down the foundation for an all-out ground attack. Plastered on the 70 downed websites was a message from the attackers. Be afraid, they wrote, and expect the worst. It was interpreted as an omen of war. Or perhaps, the vandals were signaling even worse cyber attacks to come. A month later, just nine days before the ground invasion, Russian intelligence performed a distributed denial of service against Ukraine's defense ministry and two of its largest state-owned banks. And two days after that, February 17, 2022, Russia's number one cyber threat actor, Sandworm, breached a Ukrainian energy company. In the weeks that followed, as Russian troops stormed the northern and eastern borders of their western neighbor, Sandworm would work this particular electricity provider, gathering data, establishing persistence, and preparing its final move, a cyber bomb, triggered to go off on April the 8th at exactly 5.10pm local time. If it all went to plan, the power would shut off for up to 2 million Ukrainian citizens without a simple way to get it back on, while Russian troops were rolling in. You probably would have bet on the hackers pulling it off too, because in a way, their plan was 15 years in the making. Stop me if you've heard this one before. Complications from the fallout of the Soviet Union, including simmering ethnic tensions, separatists, and long-standing land disputes, were causing increasing hostilities between Russia and its next-door neighbor. The neighbor was becoming closer and closer to the West, with some talk of a potential NATO membership bid, much to the chagrin of Vladimir Putin. And so, Russia launched a full-scale invasion. But they didn't call it an invasion. Instead, it was, quote, peace coercion operation. Russia's invasion of Georgia in 2008 was the first European war of the 21st century, and it foreshadowed future events to come. But it will be remembered by history, first and foremost, as the first kinetic war to ever be accompanied by cyber war. Three weeks before ground soldiers crossed Georgia's borders, Russian hackers coordinated a series of denial-of-service attacks against Georgia's government, military, and civilian population. First, they went after Georgian hacking forums, preempting any counterstrikes. Then, the Russians proceeded to deface 54 websites belonging to finance, communications, and government organizations, including those belonging to the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, the Ministry of Defense, the President, and Parliament, the last having been replaced with an image comparing the President to Hitler. 
The attack only got worse when the fighting began. One reporter wrote how, quote, as tanks and troops were crossing the border and bombers were flying sorties, Georgian citizens could not access websites for information and instructions, end quote. In the eastern city of Gori, for example, local news sites went out shortly before attack planes started flying overhead. The impact was twofold. An author for the Small Wars Journal explained, on one hand, it aided the war effort by, quote, denying integrating the Georgian government's ability to communicate both internally and with the outside world, through this effort and combined with other physical domain efforts, end quote. Beyond the practical utility, the attacks served the purposes of propaganda and morale. Quote, the Russians were able to demonstrate that the Georgian government was unable to defend its sovereign territory in both the physical and cyberspace domains. End quote. The primary malware the Russians used to conduct the preemptive denial of service attacks had been discovered a whole year earlier on Russian cybercriminal forums. It was given the name Black Energy. A year later, after proving its merits in the Georgian War, the Russians rewrote Black Energy from top to bottom, evolving it into something far better. The original Black Energy was a basic DDoS malware, a large network of internet bots running from Russian and Malaysian IP addresses, which possessed only three general functions. Downloading items from the attacker's servers, running a denial-of-service attack, and pausing, stopping, or killing said attack. Its successor, by contrast, was built with modules, with state-of-the-art plugins that included a dropper, a spam generator, a command to kill a target computer's entire file system, and a rootkit for reaching into its lowest, most sensitive areas. Black Energy 2 spread its wings in 2010 when hackers used it to steal credentials from authentication systems at banks in Russia and Ukraine. They used the credentials to trigger transfers of money into their own accounts, while the malware performed denial-of-service to provide a smokescreen for the fraudulent activity. By the time Black Energy 3 was discovered in 2014, it was fully decked out with all the features a hacker could ask for, like the ability to take screenshots and log keystrokes, scan the network, steal passwords, or simply destroy the infected machine outright. This was far from a standard DDoS tool. In other words, a fully-fledged malware machine suitable for any kind of malicious purpose and it was about to be put to the test, because in 2015, Russia's government wanted to use it for a purpose that had only ever been theorized in academic circles. They wanted to try something that malware had never actually done before. You see, in 2008, they were holding back. It might not have felt like it to the Georgian people at the time, but, as one U.S. official explained, quote, they didn't attempt to cripple sites that could have caused chaos or injury such as those linked to power stations or oil delivery facilities, but merely those that could trigger comparative inconvenience. There was a political decision not to attack those critical infrastructures directly. They made the point that they could launch these attacks. They showed they have the capability to do more. End quote. Russia made it known that they could cause physical consequences to critical infrastructure if they felt so inclined. The Georgians escaped that fate, 
but the Ukrainians did not. One of the most famous video clips in cyber history was filmed late in the afternoon on December 23, 2015. We see a Windows computer, a workstation at an electric utility in West Ukraine. The operators at the plant aren't touching anything, but the mouse is moving across the screen nonetheless, not randomly, but deliberately clicking to trigger certain actions. Soon, the operators pick up on what it's trying to do, flip circuit breakers, which would have the effect of shutting off the power to hundreds of thousands of citizens. The team of operators doesn't quite know what to do, Nothing like this has ever happened before. We should call the IT guys, one of them recommends. The workstation in the video happened to not be connected to the grid but others like it were. In the west of the country, 30 substations belonging to a single electricity distributor shut off, leaving around 230,000 Ukrainians without power for anywhere between one and six hours. Ukraine's citizens likely didn't think too much of it, but the ramifications were recognized around the world. Only once before, in 2010 with the Stuxnet virus, had cyber actors managed to cause kinetic consequences to physical systems. But that happened at a government facility. Never before had cyber actors caused such sabotage in a way that affected ordinary people at a mass scale. And unlike Stuxnet, this attack was relatively simple to execute. In February 2015, certain employees at energy substations around Ukraine received emails with PowerPoint files attached. The files didn't point to any working slideshows. However, and contrary to what you might assume in a story like this, they didn't actually contain any malware either. Researchers from ESET later speculated that, quote, by sending these spear phishing emails, the attackers intended to find out how many people read the emails and how many of them actually open attachments. End quote. Perhaps it was the users that opened those PowerPoints who, in the months that followed, received emails containing Microsoft Office files containing malicious macros embedded within. The files purported to be official Ukraine government business. A PowerPoint from the Prosecutor General's office, for example, or an Excel spreadsheet detailing investments in the national railway system. Targets who clicked Enable Macros downloaded malicious Java jar files to their systems, containing Black Energy 3's dropper. Now, there was Russian malware in the networks of Ukrainian energy companies, but this wasn't enough to start shutting the power down anywhere, which will become clear once you have an idea of how industrial networks work.
you can group the technology that runs at an electrical grid into three buckets. At the most fundamental level, there are the machines responsible for keeping the lights on, like transformers, which transfer energy from one circuit to another, or uninterruptible power supplies, UPSs, that provide backup power. Then there are the computers that control that machinery, SCADA systems, we call them, short for Supervisory Control and Data Acquisition. These are workstations running human-machine interfaces through which operators at the plant can monitor and send commands to machines to keep everything running smoothly. Finally, there's the IT network, where all the most basic everyday tasks happen, like email and Zoom calls. The network, obviously, needs to be connected to the wider internet. But does the IT network need to connect to the SCADA network? On one hand, it can make things convenient. For example, if an operator wants to monitor what's going on at the plant from a remote location, but anything employees can do through the internet, hackers can do as well, if they put in the legwork. The IT and SCADA networks at the targeted distribution centers were separated by firewalls, but Black Energy 3 had a bevy of plugins designed to circumvent just such a defense, like the modules responsible for mapping the network, scanning ports, gathering system information about applications and privileges, and sniffing user credentials. Between February and December in 2015, Russian hackers deliberately picked apart these networks until they reached the Windows domain controllers, where plan operators had stored their access controls. The attackers stole the authentications necessary to access the VPNs through which plant workers remotely connected to their SCADA systems. At this point, the hackers hundreds of miles away had the same access to the grid as the plant workers themselves. Researchers from ESET found evidence that, at this stage in the attack chain, the hackers used RADMIN, Ordinary Network Administration Software, to puppeteer the control software. At this point, they knew that the plant operators would be working furiously to wrestle back control over their operating systems, and so they deployed a logic bomb, a 90-minute timer, like in the movies. As the infected computer's clocks ticked from 4.59 to 5 p.m., they triggered the download of a new malware kill disk, which overwrote essential system files on the workstations, and the master boot record that enables a computer to start up in the first place, completely disabling the infected workstations. And just in case that wasn't enough, the hackers also targeted serial to Ethernet converters, responsible for transmitting instructions from human operators to control systems. They'd studied these converters closely in the months leading up to December 23rd, until they were able to write malware that could effectively swap in for the normal firmware the converters ran on. The execution was perfect. At 16 different substations, when plant operators attempted to reverse the shutdowns, their converters failed to carry out their desired commands. Workers had to physically travel to the breakers and flip them on manually, as they would for months thereafter. It just wasn't a fair fight. Even after all of this, as if to add one last nail in the coffin, a little trolling on top of the catastrophe, the hackers pulled out one more trick. As the power shut off in thousands of homes and businesses across western Ukraine, some citizens would have picked up their phones to contact the power company or their business partners 
or to check on loved ones. You figure that workers at the affected companies would have tried calling one another too to coordinate a response. Anticipating this, the perpetrators timed their grid attack with a flood of thousands of automated calls from phone numbers in Moscow. Just like an internet denial-of-service attack, they clogged up the phone lines to obstruct any communication in the affected areas, much as they had done seven years prior in Georgia. The 2015 attack against Ukraine's power grid was a watershed moment in cyber history, and one of the few most significant feats ever pulled off, let alone attempted, by a sophisticated threat actor. But even so, Russia was only just getting started. Not one year later, they returned with a second, even more impressive attack. It's merely a precursor to their biggest, boldest plot, to turn Ukraine dark in the lead-up to war in 2022. We'll continue this story in the next episode of Hacker History. And that concludes episode number 56 of the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast. If you have any feedback or ideas for future topics, please send an email to defenders at limacharlie.io. You can access the intel we talk about on the show in real time and join the conversation on the Lima Charlie community Slack channel at slack.limacharlie.io. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider sharing it with someone or leaving a rating or review. And don't forget to subscribe on whatever platform you're listening from. Thanks for listening in. We'll see you on the next episode.